What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush, and uh, it's it's about Thanksgiving time, and, uh, you know, there's a lot to talk about cinema-wise. There's a lot of new movies coming out, and a lot of topics that Connor and I will be covering very, very soon. Very, very soon. But I wanted to share with everybody a uh, little side project um, that we're working on with um, one of our favorite filmmakers, Jake S. Weissman. We know that streaming is a massive, massive part of everyone's lives, but as we all know, it can be a little bit hard to parse through what we want to see on streaming and what we want to make time for on streaming with so many Netflix originals and Hulu originals and what have you, Prime originals. It can be hard to get through to the stuff that you actually want to watch. And we want to create an opportunity to talk about these different streaming options. So uh, right here, I have a conversation with our good friend Jake S. Weisman, again, filmmaker extraordinaire, talking about one of the biggest Netflix originals, I think, to come out recently outside of some of its more popular shows. Uh, in this conversation, we talk about the Netflix original, The Other Side of the Wind. Now, many of you have an idea of what The Other Side of the Wind is. Final film from Orson Welles, debuted at the Venice Film Festival, I believe, and picked up by Netflix for distribution. It played in theaters for only one night and then was immediately for streaming on Netflix. Now, we found this to be a really interesting place to start because it says a lot about how film distribution is moving and the different types of film distribution and what the power of these companies like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, whatever can have on the film industry. The Other Side of the Wind was, of course, not completed in Orson Welles' lifetime and never released in Orson Welles' lifetime. Now, while Netflix didn't necessarily put the money in, it was up to the folks behind it like Peter Bogdanovich, Netflix did give it an opportunity to reach the largest audience possible for this movie. And not only that, they included a lot of extra materials that would give people who weren't so familiar with The Other Side of the Wind and what a landmark moment it was for cinema in terms of finishing a movie by one of cinema's great auteurs. Uh, whether you love or hate Orson Welles, you can't deny his influence and effect on popular culture. So we get into all of that here and talk about what we thought of the movie and some of the controversy and some of the issues inherent in it, such as, is this Orson Welles movie anymore since it was not fully edited by him, only about 45 minutes edited by Orson Welles and the content itself. What is this movie saying? What is Orson Welles intention here? So hopefully you can listen to this conversation and glean a little bit about the other side of the wind. We give our recommendation on whether or not it's worth your time, but hopefully this will give you a little bit of insight into this movie. And, uh, you know, hopefully you just enjoy this, this discourse, I suppose, uh, enjoy this talk of cinema. So without further ado, here is myself and Jake S. Wiseman talking about the other side of the wind. 
40 years in the making, Orson Welles' final film is finally showing on a streaming device near you. Is this the grand final statement of one of cinema's great auteurs? Is it an incoherent attempt at making decades-old footage make sense? And how the hell did it end up a Netflix original? I'm Tom Hush. I'm Jake S. Weissman. And this is The Other Side of the Wind. All right, so welcome to Don't Dream It, Stream It. We're... uh, a podcast that wants to take on so many of the big movies that are on streaming services and small, I would say. What do you think, Jake? Yeah, anything. I think the point of this, uh, for the most part, is that the most accessible uh, way to go see a movie at this point, aside from going to the theater, is to stream it. I mean, I guess it would be, it's probably a little easier to do than to go to your local blockbuster at this point. That's for sure. I mean... And the selection is very interesting. Um, I think we do have to note that at the time of this recording, uh, the Criterion channel has been saved. Yeah, just barely. Just barely. So there's so many different streaming services. You've got your Netflix, your Hulus, your Amazons, and some of the more niche ones like the Criterion channel, like Shudder, like so many others. So we want to try and break down. Your crunchy rolls. (laughs) We want to give you the best of the best and or at least uh, help guide your watching habits. So there's no reason to dream it when you can just stream it. Ooh. That's a good one. (laughs) So I guess we have to start off with the other side of the wind because this is one of the biggest moments, I would say, in Netflix's, I don't know, uh, originals sort of program. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, It's kind of like this beautiful convergence of original film and independent cinema with streaming, with the streaming distribution platform they almost seem like they shouldn't go together but this is the one that does and it's orson wells and john houston and peter bogdanovich it's oh my god this movie (laughs) well we'll we'll hop into it we'll hop into it in just a moment but let's dig in a little bit into the history of what the other side of the wind is so this is known as orson wells unfinished film he started production on this sometime in the 1970s if i remember correctly worked on it for a number of years and you know in kind of fits and starts and then you get to his death in 1985 and by that point some of the footage had been edited Uh, He had about 45 minutes edited by himself. He, Orson Welles, edited about 45 minutes of the movie. But all the negatives got trapped up in Paris, France, because of some legal stuff with uh, the producers. And it was really strange because it became more than just, you know, can we get this movie finished? It was, can we even get our hands on this movie? Hmm. And it's just, I can't believe this whole story. One of the best parts about this being on Netflix, I guess, is that it is accompanied by a relatively short documentary that covers the creation of this movie. I know uh, I got a chance to watch it this afternoon. Jake, you watched it as well? Yeah, it's called I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. Right? Isn't that what it's called? Well, that's that's the one about Orson Welles. 
right? Well, there, there's another one that's kind of like buried. That's specifically if you go and this is this is where the streaming part comes in. Uh, when you go <laughs> to the other side of the wind. And you go on trailers and more, there's a trailer for it. And then there's a brief documentary specifically about how they restored this movie. Oh, man, you got one on me because I didn't watch that. I watched the uh, the Orson Welles documentary. Hey, man, you got one on me there. I probably do need to watch that as well because he's a complicated figure. And this, I feel like the other side of the wind captures so much of his complicated nature just in the – of course this is the way the movie was made in like the most insane way possible where it had to be stitched together piece by piece. But just to give uh, a brief overview, review uh the negatives of the other side of the wind were trapped in a vault in paris and they were under court order to stay there because they needed the approval of three different parties to get those negatives you needed orson's family since he was deceased um i believe his daughter had a claim to the rights you had oja kadar who is in the film the other side of the wind and also uh, part of the creation. Uh, she was his creative partner for the other side of the wind. And then Astrofor, a production company that was running through France, they all had a claim to those negatives. And since there was no real agreement on what to do with them, this movie stayed locked away in these vaults in the, their, all the original negatives all in canisters for the better part of about 37 years, I think, because he died in 1985, something like that. Yeah. So all this time, and it took a lot of work on the part of people like Peter Bogdanovich, Orson Welles' family, um, you know, and these, you know, these parties involved to finally decide what they were going to do with it. And they said, well, I guess we're going to finish it. They finally got their hands on the negatives. And this documentary included with the, um, with the film is pretty spectacular because it shows just what kind of a mess this movie was in. You can't even believe they're going through hundred, like a hundred hours of footage or more. And like, I mean, Jake, you're a filmmaker yourself, you know, trying to put together just a few hours of footage is like a task to try and put a narrative to that. Much less analog when you actually have to put the film, digitize the film, put the audio to the digitization and go through the entire process. But, uh, you know, that's the thing is it's hard for me to watch this film as anything other than an independent filmmaker and uh, someone who desperately wants to make more films, who's made one and desperately wants to make more um, and I, there's, there's something about this film, which I'll come right out and say, it. well, I guess I'll be a little more poetic about it. Uh, when Chinese democracy by guns and roses finally <laughs> came out, uh, Chuck Klosterman wrote an article, a review of it saying, you know, reviewing this album is kind of like reviewing a unicorn. Like what, am, what am I supposed to say? So whatever, I have to say about it, there's the the lore and the mystique of it being this unfinished film of the greatest auteur of all time. Like, uh, it, it, it lends to the film because in and of itself, I think the film is ungodly self-serving, narcissistic, egomaniacal, and ultimately 
not as artistic as everyone is acting like it is. And they're giving it the credit of this, the, the mystique and the posthumous lore of it all and giving Orson kind of this, uh, uh, this gift uh, when, when in actuality the film is like, it's rough for me. It's a rough watch for me. That is scathing. <laughs> that is a I, scathing review. <laughs> I like it to an extent, but I don't believe everything I'm being told about it. Well, I think that's the only way you can really approach this in a in a genuine way is with a certain level of skepticism. You know, we are yeah. talking about a movie that was made by a man not exactly at the height of his powers, if we're being completely honest with ourselves. Oh, no, pretty Citizen, much at the bottom of them. Yeah, I mean, Citizen Kane was a long time ago. That We're talking about, what, Citizen Kane came out in uh, 41? something yeah. yeah, something like that. Something like that. It's And, you know, he's making a movie like 30 years later, essentially. Part of the documentary is they talk about how you know, someone like John Huston was able to balance uh, uh, making movies like Annie, like he would do the kind of link letter. Well, I guess link letter is doing the Houston thing of doing the money picture and then doing the art picture and all this. But every time Orson Welles made a movie, it was up against Citizen Kane. Every right. single time he wanted to do anything, it was up against Citizen Kane. But I have thoughts about that as well, because I think... You know, I it uh, as far as having a reputation and as far as having to create something that yes is artistic, but also yes is part of the business. And I don't know how easy Orson Welles was to get along with, even though they destroyed a lot of his work. But you know, am I making any sense? You know, like how they destroyed Touch of Evil, so he got really angry about it, and that's what made him really disillusioned about a lot of things in Hollywood, but at the same time, he wanted to keep making movies. But the yeah. people in charge are such uh, assholes yeah. about it. They don't understand his brilliant vision. So, yes, there is a level of, I am a genius, I am an artist, I am... Uh, they don't understand me. Uh, but there's a level to me where I'm like, if he was able to compromise like even a little bit would he have been more successful with it all? I mean, he did end up directing upwards of 10 movies, right? So isn't that success, even though he wanted to make more? Maybe he wanted to make a you know a Hitchcock amount of films, but he could only get the funding for, for so much. And ultimately, this is the last thing he shot, and it took five years to shoot. And I'm, again, not sold on the lore of it all that, like oh, this film within a film is a satire of other movies. I don't buy that shit for a minute. I think that that's the movie he was trying to make and realize what a piece of shit it was, and now he's trying to satirize himself or save himself the embarrassment of having to lose all this film that he spent a year shooting because he realized what stupidness it is. Naked women walking around, stalking. It's pretty shots. And then he says, oh, I'm making fun of Antonini or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's really, um, that's a really convenient answer, I feel, for like someone who spent a lot of people's time making something. And you can tell he's just like, okay, now look at her. 
and the things that like John Houston would be saying or Sun Wells is actually saying. So it's just uh I'm not sold. I'm not sold. All right. Well, let's let's dig into this. I mean, let's let's get into the plot here because I think it's important for people to have some sort of framework going in because I will say yeah. this is an incredibly no matter who you are, uh whether or not you're well versed in the types of films, it's whether you think it's satirizing them or completely just like trying to rip them off. Um, if you're not well versed in that type of cinema, it's extremely jarring. And frankly, I found it jarring on my first watch. I did get a chance to watch it again one more time. And uh, let's, let's go over the plot. So basically this movie takes place over the course of the last day of, of a director's life. This director is uh, JJ is it Haddonfield um, Haverford Haverford something like that. But played. <laughs> let's just let's just honestly let's say what we're meaning to say, which is ultimately the the actor's name. So John Houston. John Houston. John Houston plays a director on the last day of his life. Uh, and it has to, it's also coincidentally his 70th birthday. It's also when he is showing off his latest film titled The Other Side of the Wind. Now, basically, this movie revolves around them going to a party and uh, everybody getting shit faced and watching this movie as kind of things seem to just break down around this director. And people try to make sense of what they're seeing, and it eventually ends in his death um, following the completion of this screening. Kind of an anticlimactic death, I, I felt. Of sorts. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know if you – do you agree with me? I don't know. I don't know if anticlimactic – it's hard to say anticlimactic because we know he dies at the very beginning. Um, the right. monologue – Provided actually now in 2018 by uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who plays his young protege of sorts. Um, Otter Lake. Yeah, Otter Lake. I, we'll call him Bogdanovich. We'll call him Bogdanovich because that's ultimately who he's playing. Uh, but Bogdanovich uh, provides the monologue, which was originally in the script. He did alter it to because it was originally supposed to be read by Orson Welles himself. And they made the creative decision to say, well, we'll have Bogdanovich read it, and, but he's going to be reading it in character as Brooks Otterlake. And uh, it just gives us a framing device where we know that Houston is going to die at the end. Houston's character will die at the end of this party. So it gives us this framing of we're about to watch a movie that is supposed to encapsulate this character's life. You know, the following story is essentially going to be a movie that tells you all about this character and tries to sum up his life. Over In the addition course. to that, uh, paparazzi are all invited. Press are all invited. Documentary. Yeah. So the whole movie is indeed in in the guise of a, mock, a documentary, even though it kind of loses that structure sometimes. But the, it, it never does quite forget um, this fourth wall, and there's always somebody shooting. So it goes from color to black and white. And the the strongest thing I I have to say about this film is you know the the shooting and editing of it all. It's very dense, and I don't mind the pace of it all. Um, I I'm more of a 
I, I think that the content is more problematic than actually like the way it's put together. Right. I uh, think I think there's uh, a level to that. The le- the way it's put together, uh, as you mentioned before, it does call back to uh, Michelangelo and Tonioni. Uh, it calls back a little bit to the French New Wave, especially in these kind of rough, sharp edits between perspective and this idea that people are aware that they're on film. Um, it's definitely very breathless, very band of outsiders. Um, and in addition to that layer, not only do you have to deal with this idea that the film is constantly switching perspectives and they're constantly being filmed, but also the film for fairly long stretches shows you the film that he made the other side of the wind. So the other side of the wind is the title of both the overall work starring John Huston and Peter Bogdanovich, but also the movie that Houston's character has created. And I will say on my first viewing, it gave me a lot of trouble and I felt like it was really just so much information to take in and trying to parse the different levels that we were on uh, to give a decent analog it'd be like when you watch inception for the first time and you're trying to remind yourself which dream level you're supposed to be on except inception was fairly straightforward about that this is like it's a total information overload yeah it's just watching these people and it's so obviously transparent and i think that he's like what level of winking at the camera is acceptable it's very uh it's such a movie by movie artist by artist kind of a thing. Cause sometimes I'm really into it. And this time I just felt like it was kind of um, like, he just couldn't do anything else. And so he just made this really transparent, very present movie. Cause he didn't have a real story and he kept acting like it was something, but within the movie, it doesn't know what it is. There's a, there's a screening where uh, John Houston's assistant goes to this uh, uh, equivalent to, um, oh my God, Robert Evans, you know? Yes. And um, he's showing him these different clips and he's describing what the movie is. And, and it doesn't, Robert Evans basically gets pissed off and, and leaves because there's no script and it doesn't know what it is. And so like, just because Orson Welles knows what he's doing. I mean, maybe that does mean that it's brilliant. I just don't know. It's really hard. <laughs> I, it's hard for me to figure it out. I just particularly was turned off. I thought that the original Bogdanovich intro was like really a sore thumb the first time I watched it. Cause I didn't understand why he was didn't why he had a different name Mm -hmm. you know like this fake character and i thought it was a self-serving kind of a thing but maybe you know there's kind of this theme of self-servingness of it all but it, it started losing me when they were calling themselves like jesus and apostles and stuff like that in terms of like orson wells being god and bogdanovich because he imitated his style as one of his apostles uh-huh. and uh it it's really like really and and at the same time um 
John Houston would do this thing where every single little line he had was like this brilliant quip where people would laugh and clap. And I just was like, I just, uh. but I, I have to, I have to interject and I have to say, I found it all to be completely tongue in cheek. Like just the expression on Bogdanovich's face, whenever he would say all this shit and um, talk all this smack. And you've got John Houston's character who, as you said, he does. It's absolutely true. He always has a quip. He always has some sort of uh, Ernest Hemingway style sort of line that he can come up with. That's just so witty and it's so masculine, but here's what I'm going to say. Um, I think it really, I think it sincerely is a satire one. Um, I don't know if that was Orson Welles original intention, but it's what we have now. It's what we have with the other side of the wind. It is absolutely a satire and that Houston is playing, as I said, this Hemingway style character that is also, um, a total persona that was the result of his time as being a symbol of classic Hollywood. I think this director that Wells created for this role and he used Houston for a reason is that he's supposed to be this classical style director dealing with a new Hollywood, new wave sort of protege that apes him, but is willing to leave him in the dust when push comes to shove. And I think another point is, is that, I know this is a persona because it is hinted at throughout the through most of this movie that Houston's character is uh, is at least bisexual, if not fully a gay man. I'm going to let you sit with that for a second. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I am dead serious. No, I'm. Yeah, no, that's there are the implications. And I was reading some of the stuff about that. I think you might I'm sure you're right. I think most people agree with you. I agree with you. I I agree that it's a satire. I just don't know. It's this very weird inside out self-awareness for me. It's hard for me to pinpoint because it, you know like okay, so in the documentary Orson Welles got this lifetime achievement award, this AFI lifetime achievement award. Yeah. And he really thought that he could use the opportunity to pitch this movie. And by the end of the night, he would have the money to finish this film in real time. Right. In yeah. the eighties. And, uh, he showed that clip that I was talking about of the guy watching the movie and trying to describe the movie and not knowing how to describe the movie and the studio head saying it was stupid. Yeah. And there's a level of, so how self-aware is he then? If, if you're trying and, and the, the, unfortunately the punchline to that anecdote is that he, no one called him, no one gave him any money and he couldn't finish the movie. And it was a real disappointment for him. And it and so why wouldn't you use that opportunity to show a clip of something that that proves that you know what you're doing rather than like it's all it I know it's not, but it's almost like this Andy Kaufman type like self sabotage. To be fair, it's really d- fucking weird. How do we know it how do we know it's not? 
That's 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 the problem, and that I think that's the mystique of the movie, is that we're going to literally spend with the, with this movie, love it or hate it, people are going to spend or could I'm not they might not, but uh, people <laughs> could potentially spend like decades trying to decide this this auteur's vision, and I think ultimately. There's a moment in this movie that I think where it really clicked, and it's really not until the end. My first viewing, I was like, I am really not sure what is happening here. I'm not really sure what I'm trying, what I'm latching onto about this movie, but I'm in for the ride because of this, because of the cinematography, because it felt at least interesting. And I was like, okay, I'll stick through this. But there's a moment when at the very end, they have to finish the screening at a drive-in and i don't mean to give away the details here because ultimately this movie is about the journey the plot means almost nothing and that and i'll tell you why they're at the drive-in to finish this screening and uh one of houston's acolyte or one of his acolytes one of his uh little followers the guy this guy who played he was a child star in all of houston's characters movies he turns over to the projectionist at the drive-in and he says you're showing the reels out of sequence and the drive-in projectionist turns to him and says does it matter (laughs) and i think that's really important i think as much as it is like a total wink and nod and sort of thing. I think it really is important to understanding this movie because um, you're essentially watching a movie that is that was out of sequence uh, with the movie within the movie. And then also, you know, we're watching ultimately on a metatextual level, this hodgepodge of footage that never really got put together that is ostensibly could be out of sequence and it doesn't really matter it doesn't matter whether or not you get the vision. And maybe because – is it because Orson Welles is saying like because this new Hollywood stuff is BS, it's already horse shit? Or is he saying that like you know, it's about the feeling? Uh, there's another quote that I have to, I have to point out because it's, it's so important I think to my understanding of it. Uh, at the very end of the movie, we hear John Huston turn you know, and say – who knows? Maybe you can stare too hard at something, drain out the virtue, suck out the living juice. You shoot the great places and pretty people, all the girls and boys, shoot them dead. That's a great line. Am I crazy? Is that not a great no, line? A great line. It's a total great line. I feel like I'm giving away some things, but I, I really want people to go into this with some sort of like map of what they might be looking for. Yeah. Because I went, going into it blind is a chore. I will I will I will cop to that. It's very dense. It's a very dense film and it's not it, there it is not easy to latch on to any character and it is so transparent in terms of um you know he didn't like Pauline Kale cuz of what she wrote so he wrote in a shitty female critic who didn't understand John Huston and uh there's a I think one of the directors is supposed to be John Milius and you know they're all making fun of Bogdanovich the other interesting uh, thing is that Rich Little the very famous uh, impersonator had the Bogdanovich uh, role and shot months or weeks rather of that role and then had to go do work and Orson Welles felt so betrayed that uh, 
Rich Little had to go do work that he asked Peter Bogdanovich to re-record the entire um, thing. You know, which is interesting. People in the documentary make the connection of, well, Rich Little is this impressionist playing a director who people criticize Bogdanovich for being an impressionist of Wells. Right. And not having his own style. Ultimately, they both refer to themselves in these like godlike positions. Um, so it is, I, there are definitely good moments. There are things I like about it, um, but I, you know what, you know what I keep coming back to, Tom. What? I keep coming back to imagining if he did get the money and the timeline, if he had, and is this movie even timely at that point? If you're making a comment about new American cinema at 1981. You know, like, and in, in you write this movie about yourself and this kid that you, like, respect, but ultimately it's showing, like, what little respect and kind of, like, having these, you know, there's, like, a Sybil Shepherd lookalike thing where that's mm-hmm. really, um, you know, he looks down on her and shit like that. So, it, it, yes, it's tongue-in-cheek, but it, the transparency... <sighs> it, it kind of gets in the way for me. Cause I don't think that the filmmakers are necessarily aware of how transparent they are being. I know they, mm-hmm. they, I know they know they're transparent, but I don't know if they know the level. I know that's very confusing. I, I would almost liken this to getting close. One of, one of our favorite books or one that we have at least both read. I know I really love this book. I do uh, love it. It is, I can't even remember the name now. It is uh, <laughs> Easy Riders Raging Bulls by Peter Biskin. And I feel like in a lot of ways, this movie, The Other Side of the Wind, is a little bit in that vein. You know, you've got uh, you're watching these new Hollywood people deal with old Hollywood people and it's shot in this, you know, very cinema verite sort of way. It's very like in your face. Uh, It has all these different subtextual things. It's very sexually liberated. Like, you know, if we're if we're being honest um, and I, I, I just can't get past like fine. I kind of find this movie really funny. I find this movie to be kind of like darkly humorous, especially Bogdanovich's character. He's just such a smarmy ass, but he knows he's like, he knows he's a piece of shit. He puts himself forward as this new auteur and he's such a student of Houston's character, but he's also got this production company that's going to go public and he's going to net $40 million and he knows he doesn't have an original thought in his head. He like depends on his friendship with Houston. And um, there's even a line at the end where they're having a falling out after Bogdanovich reveals that he is not going to help fund this new venture, this, you know, the completion of this movie for Houston's character. And he's all pissed off. And uh, Bogdanovich is like, what did I do wrong, daddy? Like in this very mocking tone and where he's just like, oh, my God, like he clearly loves this dude because his whole career is based off of him. But he's such an asshole. He's such a piece of shit. And he says, you know, something to the effect of uh, is this where our revels end? And uh, 
Houston just turns to him and says, you bet your sweet cheeks. You know, this mm-hmm. is this is old Hollywood being like, fuck you. You're an asshole. Like you built you stood on the shoulder of giants and you, uh, you know, you did you're doing all this like this is what you this is how you repay us. I think that's a really interesting reading. I like that. I really, I really love the. There's kind of this uh, teacher-student dialectic that's going on between a lot of people, um, you know, with Houston and Bogdanovich, uh, Houston and the guy that plays the lead actor that walks off the set and is Jim is implied. Dale. Yes, and is, it's implied that Houston's character had a sexual relationship with him. Yeah, as he has had with all of his lead actors, and then there's Wells and Bogdanovich, as you mentioned. You know, they, what's their student teacher thing? Um, and even there's a point where uh, one of the teachers, one of the school teachers of the lead actor within the film, um, comes and talks about how there was another teacher at their school that was that was uh, a homosexual and prayed on the young boys and there's this whole weird, that was the only part I found really problematic was the way Houston approaches Houston's character and by extension, Wells approaches this story of the lead actor from the film within a film possibly being, um, sexually abused as a child. Oh yeah. Didn't, doesn't the teacher come and watch the movie and yes. ask why everyone's nude and yeah, he's being all like weird. Humiliate him at the party or something. Yeah. Um, essentially he gets Houston's character gets him to talk, essentially admit that there was a sexually predatory teacher at the school. He did probably prey on this, this actor, and then uh, they did nothing about it. The school did nothing. And Houston kind of calls him out for it, but in a way that doesn't feel like he's actually looking for just actual justice because Houston in of itself, like his character is also a predator in his own way. Um, there's a whole subplot talking about how he discovered the lead and how uh, it's kind of dubious and how he's clearly grooming these actors in the same way that teacher was grooming that boy, you know, those boys. So I found that to be really the biggest point of tension for me when we get there. That's when Wells, it, at least it made the film, the film feel dated and it made Wells politics shine through in a really strange way in a movie that is, you know, you could find a lot of problematic elements with. Yeah. It's making me think. I know I feel like I'm going to watch it a third time because I just don't know ultimately I don't know if anybody can make any sort of definitive statement about this movie. I think everybody should tr- I think everybody should try to watch it uh simply because Orson Welles, love him or hate him, is a titanic figure in American cinema. Um arguably the the first great American auteur uh you know, except for maybe John Ford or yeah, or or John they were Houston all contemporaries and um you know every it, it all bounced around you know Japanese and French and uh, across the seas everybody really aped those uh styles and then it 
keeps bouncing back and forth over the ocean totally through the years it's a lot of fun and to track it but with wells i mean he's he's orson wells that's the thing is that i mean you can say john ford john ford obviously has a certain thing attached to him especially with his westerns and um you know he he has his own story his own thing um you know john houston as well also had you know his own enigma and all that kind of stuff but orson wells was the wonderkind he he came up from the days of radio he had war of the worlds he had the mercury theater it was he was the one he was the artistic soul of late 30s early 40s america and then he comes out with citizen kane and uh you know people did not react to it the way he wanted to. And it really fucked up his career despite being a groundbreaking film. You know, there's the stories of the magnificent Ambersons, how fucked up that got. Uh, And fucked all of his movies. They fucked all of his movies. So he is a tragic figure in a lot of ways, even though he did end up doing a bunch of shitty wine commercials and eating his fat ass to death. Oh, Paul Maison. (laughs) i think we have to talk about something i wanted to talk about that please oh what go go ahead let's talk about Uh, late orson wells well this is what i wanted to say is that you know along with was he easy to get along with all these motherfuckers were drunk just drunk off the their ass and that's something that i always think about when i watch cassavetti's movies and watch cassavetti's uh interviews and read about him that i love him so much i think he's one of the greatest artists in the world and the dude was trashed all the time and it's easy to not think about that like think about how everything that he touched at all times he was just drunk you know like we don't Hopefully, I mean, I don't know how we all live our lives, but it's a that's a hard life to live. Super, and um, you know, that's what is so unfortunate is that I feel like it all caught up with Orson Welles. He's no longer trying to create a story that's an illusion. He's trying to like it's a weird play on reality and he go mm-hmm. that's why it shot the way that it shot and with all the paparazzi it's he wanted to evolve the the form and i think you know it it does to an extent but what it doesn't do is let you follow any characters like a citizen kane or even yeah. or a touch of evil or anything even the ones that got all fucked up you know right like you need to be able to follow something and in usually a movie will have themes and a plot that are metaphors or reflect what's going on in real life and not like the story of a director and his fucking protege on the last day of his life trying to sell a bullshit movie that everybody knows is bullshit with the same title as the movie that I'm watching. Yeah. I mean, bringing up the Antonioni thing is, uh, you know, one of the big Antonioni movies I'm into is blow up. Um, I really never seen one of his movies. It's a shame on me. It is a shame because there's a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff, but, um, you know, that's another movie that I would say is very, 
uh, can be confusing at times. Like, you don't really get what's going on. Like, there's kind of a plot. There's, like, a little bit of what's going on. But I think you hit the nail on the head is that a lot of times I, I can, although I did attach myself to some of the characters, especially just as uh, kind of broad caricatures of what they're supposed to be. Um, you it's you don't attach the way that you do to like the main character and blow up. Like you at least get to know who he, what kind of person he is, and you get to follow a certain journey. And there's there's very clear theme. I I don't want to say that there's no themes in this though, because I think no, there are tons of them. It's dense. It's hell. it's almost too many. You know, is it is there such thing as too many themes? Of course there is. <laughs> um, of course there is. You know, it was, and I was telling you this before, but this movie. When I watched this the first time, it really made me want to watch two other movies. One of them was Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie, which is a podcast in and of itself, but it's not streaming anywhere. I have a bootleg of it. Cool. Uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, But the other one was Orson Welles's F for Fake which is a fantastic movie. To be fair, I've seen it once. I was in college with a lot of good friends and it kind of blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And it's like half documentary, half not. He's in it. He's telling stories. It's about the guy who forged Howard Hughes diaries combined with Wells's love of magic and his history of magic and illusion. And it's edited. So it's exhausting. And that same Oya woman is all over that movie. Right. And I thought that movie was just absolutely fascinating and did elevate cinema and did keep pushing. And it surprised me. I didn't know it existed. And here's this 1970s uh, uh, Orson Wells movie. Um, that's so unlike anything, but I can't stop watching it. And I think uh, this one is just a little bit of a, uh, a a little bit of a jerk off session, if I can be candid with you, Tom Hush. Well, there's there's some moments where I just I just can't agree because it's so self aware of what a jerk off session it is and how much of a jerk off session like a lot of the young people were at the time. I mean, you have the new Hollywood directors, while while important and while some of my favorite filmmakers were total like art school jerk offs in a lot of yeah, ways. But if you're jerking off, making fun of people jerking off, doesn't that make, isn't that weird? Isn't that just a, isn't that just a circle jerk? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but there's, I, I got to, yes, you nailed it. I, yes, Tom, this movie is a circle jerk. Let me, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Let me bring up one point. Um, and, and let me just bring up a moment that I thought it was really funny. And I caught this more on my second run. Um, the film crew that there's a, there's a scene where they're initially driving from the set back to the, the, to go to this party essentially. And you've got John Houston Bogdanovich in a car and they're being like interviewed and shot by this, this film crew. And the questions the film crew are asking are so (laughs) goddamn funny. Like it's just so film school. It's just like, you know, what is the camera? eye? blah, 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 blah. Is it just a phallus? And it, the, yeah, is the camera eye just a phallus? Which, if you watch this movie, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what they're saying. But you know, who am I? Who am I to say? I, I think the end of the film. There's a shot at the end of the film that might, uh, I don't know, convince convince you of the whole phallus <laughs> metaphor that's going on. I don't want to spoil it. I've already spoiled too much. Um, let's. I just gotta ask. I gotta ask one thing: Is this Orson Welles' grand statement about cinema? Is that what this is? Ooh. 
I would have to say yes because I gotta believe that Orson Welles would say yes. I don't know what I mean, Orson Welles would say. I don't. I, he was, I mean, I, I, I realize how presumptuous that was as it came out of my mouth, but you know, like what other movie has he made that's specifically about making movies? Because even you know, Citizen Kane might be about what's his face, William Randolph Hearst. Yeah, Hearst, but it's not like it's about movies. So if he's if this, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I would say that this is his ultimate uh, statement as a cinema as a film. He decided to make his last film to be about a film. Yeah, um, I think it is, and. You know, it. I think he might have been happy to know that there would be people out there to watch this and be like, "This is shit. This is not good." I think he'd be really pleased. Be I think he he would be. I think he'd be really pleased with the final outcome. If he, if he really had a hundred hours of footage, that dude had no fucking clue. That dude had no fucking clue what he was going to do with all of it. That's well, so much. That's so much footage. Dude. I know, but we also have. Let's talk about a modern director like Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow. I mean, and granted, it's a different sort of length of reason why he has a length of footage. But me, I mean, I find it ironic that it doesn't bother me here that it's so f- kind of loose and everything like that. And maybe he went in not really knowing what he was going to do. Meanwhile, Judd Apatow goes in, and I feel like he does a similar thing where he's just like, "Well, you know." We have broad strokes of a story and kind of, a, you know, I don't know how oh, much Judd of a script Apatow he has. writes a script. Yeah, but then he spends 100 hours doing improv that isn't. But uh, there's that, something to go to go with. Orson Welles was writing this shit as he went there, along. There, I mean, there was a script for this. I want to see what script was here because I just I don't believe it. There was a script. Can confirm they they went through the script. That's where the monologue at the beginning comes I from. There is a they script. Were all like, I, I believe it's more of like a a Christopher Guest broad stroke than a than a Judd Apatow broad stroke. I can't. I bet this. They don't. Ha, it's not. I want to see this script. Netflix release <laughs> the script. Release the script. Netflix because I would love to read it because I want to know. Um, you know what? Let's let's do something here. Jake, you've made so many statements about this movie. Would you be willing to give me just a closing? We'll each make our closing statements about this movie and then say whether or not we'd give it a, th- a thumbs up or a thumbs down on Netflix. We're going to. Oh, that's smart. Thumbs up, thumbs down. That's what Netflix does, right? Yeah. Okay. Final statement. I get the, I, I'm going to start. Or are you going to start? You go ahead. Okay, me. I applaud Netflix for using their vast sums of money to give us this thing that so many want. And it's not much for them to be able to make this a reality. And it's a shame that Orson Welles didn't have something like Netflix to give him all this money to make whatever jerk off picture he wanted to make. I think it, I, you know, it's not what I thought it was going to be. I don't think it's altogether terrible, but I do think that it's one of the most self-serving films as a filmmaker that I've, I've seen as of late. Uh, that is 
so painfully on a, uh, aware of itself that it's um that it 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 takes some of the joy out that being said i really do like the cut i like the the multimedia fix when i saw the netflix thing go gong go through and it was in 43 i kind of got goosebumps um i you know there're film dork things that i really appreciate about it uh and it's i I can fuck with it to an extent. <laughs> Look at that praise. <laughs> I can fuck with it to an extent. Uh, here's what I'm going to say. The other side of the wind is a multi-layered satire that takes a lot of risks as is the custom by a man like Orson Welles. While it doesn't always hit every mark, I think it is a fascinating statement about cinema in a time and a place. I think it is a fascinating exercise on the part of the crew that put it together, you know, in 2017, 2018. And it should be watched by everyone just so they can ask themselves, what is the other side of the wind? <laughs> I'm going to get... Do you think it's a fart joke? <laughs> I was thinking of that. I can joke. really only hope so. Um, I'm going to th- give it a thumbs up. I recommend it. I think everybody who cares about what the platform of streaming can do for cinema. I think this is one of the most positive things Netflix has done in terms of using, as you said, using their powers and their financial security to make this pipe dream come true, regardless of what the result was. I as well will give this a thumbs up on Netflix. And I'll tell you, I know that I spent most of this episode talking about why I didn't like it as a movie, but I got to tell you, I'm really, really, really happy. It exists. I'm really glad I can watch it whenever I want to. I do feel for Orson Welles, man. Like as a filmmaker, all this guy wanted was for it to be made and they made it happen. And I got to give him props. And I always want more seventies movies on Netflix anyway. So even though it's a technically what a 2018 movie or yeah. 1980 movie, like whatever year you want to put it, um, it's a style I really enjoy and it's very, very unique, even though as a film, I, you know, I don't particularly care for it. I'm just really, really, I cannot emphasize how happy I am that it exists in this form well there it is everybody that is orson wells the other side of the wind available on netflix right now uh we also recommend that you watch the accompanying documentary found under trailers and more and also they'll love me when i'm dead which is a fully different documentary that you can watch <laughs> that that captures more of orson wells life okay jake so what is the next movie we are gonna stream tom the next film is jeremy solney's Hold the Dark, Dreaming Now on Netflix. All right. Well, you have some time to watch it, folks. Get on Netflix and watch the Netflix original, Hold the Dark. Uh, Until next time, I'm Tom Hush. 
I'm Jake S. Weissman. And uh, don't forget, you don't have to dream it when you can stream it. <laughs>